Hello, this is Dr. Ned Hallowell, and welcome to Dr. Hallowell's Wonderful World of Different. Today's episode is sponsored by Zing Performance. And to learn more, just go to hallowell.zingperformance.com. It's a non-medication treatment for ADHD and really quite a breakthrough in terms of what it does. Well, today I have a most unusual guest, a man who has weathered many storms and come out smiling, a man who has been dealt many difficult cards, including in the womb. And yet at the proud age of 38, he looks like he's shining like a star. I love these stories from rags to riches, from desperation to victory, from misery, fear, anxiety, and dejection to triumph and victory and enthusiasm and jubilation, especially when the stories are true. They're not fairy tales. That makes them all the more compelling and useful to all of us because we're all trying to get through this life the best way we can. And I think our best teachers are people who've had it tough and somehow managed not to let that knock them down. And they come back with even more renewed vigor, talent, and determination. So with that as an introduction, let me introduce my new friend and man whom I've come to admire in the short amount of time I've known him, Mr. Mike Gavoni. Mike hails from my state of Massachusetts, but he moved a couple of years ago with his now wife, Ivy, to uh, Sedona, Arizona. He tells me Sedona, Arizona is the spiritual capital of the world, but I'll let him say more about that. So, Mike, welcome to my podcast, and please tell our listeners about your amazing story. Yeah, Dr. Hello, thanks for having me on the show today and uh, for that beautiful introduction. You use the context there, weather the storms. I usually say I've I've been dealt some Mount Everest-like hurdles that I've had to conquer. So it's really my greatest aspiration to share with others and hopefully give the listeners a little bit of hope for whatever they're struggling with. I think if we can help people suffer less in any capacity, it's a beautiful thing. So yeah, as I mentioned to you earlier, my journey got started a little rough, uh, I think, in my mom's womb. And what I mean by that is my mom experienced a lot of stress and trauma, and she discovered uh, my dad was a religious figure. That's a whole deep story in itself. But uh, she discovered a couple secrets he had, and uh, she had to flee. And and I was in her womb, and I was swimming in a sea of cortisol, some stress hormones. And I think that set me up, like I said to you earlier, epigenetically to experience. I'm just curious, because I know listeners would be, what were these secrets, and why did your mom have to flee? The secrets were, you know, my dad was a Catholic priest before he became a born-again Christian preacher. My dad was not heterosexual, and uh, she found that out through him watching pornography and later began to know about what he experienced as a Catholic priest, and those were allegations of pedophilia. And that's some real heavy, deep stuff that she came to see, and she was holding those deep secrets as as I was even into my late teenage years when I discovered my dad the same way my mother had. So she had to basically up and run and get out of there and hold that secret for a long time because back in the 70s and 80s, no one was hearing that as of yet. And now we know it's completely different 
And so, yes, uh, we could have a whole other episode on that. So as I shared with you epigenetically, I think gene expression, I was prone to have some genes for addiction and autoimmunity and cognitive issues, things of that nature. And those did show up later on. So I know I need to speak as fast as I can. No, 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 no. Before we started, I advised Mike to to speak quickly because it was an ADD audience. But that doesn't mean you have to go a mile a minute. I'm sorry. Take your time. Take your time. So you growing up, was there additional trauma growing up? Yeah, well, that story is in depth. My mother suffered from alcoholism. So she was going through a lot of challenges, as you can imagine, with her own trauma that she's experienced. And my mom lost custody of of us children, my sister and I, to my father. And my father raised my sister and I. Wait a minute. Wait a minute. Your mom lost custody of you and your sister to your father, who was a pedophile? To my father, that was a pedophile. But But that wasn't known at the time? It wasn't known at the time, and my father was very powerful in the sense of he had a very large congregation. He was a religious leader. and As a um, born-again or as a Catholic priest? Both when he was a Catholic priest and as a born-again Christian preacher. So here my mom was sharing with the courts and that sort of stuff, and he was just portraying her as this drunk. What years? This is 1980s? This is probably 86, 88. Okay. And where in Massachusetts? I grew up in Marshfield and my mom situated Massachusetts. Because that our part of the country is not known for born again Christians, but there was your dad leading a big congregation, huh? Yes. And that congregation, I think it's it moved around at that point. It might have been in Norwell, Mass, or Hingham, actually. Hingham. So he got custody of you by portraying your mom as a stubble down drunk. And he got you and your sister when you were how old? I was three. She was five. Wow. And and he brought you into his home. Was he living alone? or So he lived alone. And my sister and I were raised by my dad. And to go back a little bit, in some capacity, it saved me in my sister because my mom wasn't capable because of her trauma and alcoholism. She's a, a very severe alcoholic. So, you know, I think the audience and a lot of people question, you know, did he sexually abuse my sister and I? And the answer is, I don't think so. Okay. But I don't know either. But as uh, far as you, as far as your memory goes, he did not. As far as my memory knows, he did not. He was not a drinker himself. He was not a drinker. No, he was not a drinker. He, he lived a somewhat quote unquote normal life, but, but not really. There was a lot of stuff in the shadows in the background that I wasn't aware of that I began to discover as a young, a young guy, you know, asking questions. Why don't you have a girlfriend? So what's going on? And then I began as I was uh, 16 years old. Let me fast forward a little bit. You know, my house wasn't the safest to be in all the time either. It wasn't, it wasn't loving. It wasn't nurturing me. My father didn't get along. And so I hit the streets and I started hanging around with the older kids. What age were you talking? I started hanging out with the wrong crowd early, probably 11 years old. Smoked my first joint of marijuana at 11 years old, drinking alcohol, 12, 13 years old. Exploring. You're like fifth grade, sixth grade, that kind of thing? Yeah, sixth grade, middle school, I started to experiment with marijuana and so forth. And then it kind of escalated. By the time I was 16, 17. Wait a minute, so you, you kept going to school? 
Yes, I was in school. My dad, you know, drove into my sister and I to to graduate, to get a good job, you know, go to university if you can, although we didn't have the funds. So, you know, my sister put herself through school. I went to university for a little time. So you kept going to school, but you were using drugs, but still going to school. Yes. Okay. Did you do your homework and stuff? I got decent, not the best grades. I was like a C, C, B student. Uh-huh. Now, would you say that I have ADHD back then? I wasn't one of those kids that was completely off the walls per se, I, but my attention was other places. And, and as you shared in your book, ADHD 2.0, I was suffering from a lot of, as you know, ACEs, adverse childhood experiences. Now, sexual abuse is part of my story, not from my father per se, but that's part of my story. Who did that to you? It was a gentleman that was on the upstairs pizzeria that was above my father's church. Wow. Yeah. So that was a one-time incident that I had to work out when I was a young guy. And, And thank God my mother actually supported me and my father to go to therapy when I was younger to work that out. And that situation never really did haunt me, but it was there. You follow me? Yeah. Emotional neglect, obviously, like I said, the nurturing from my mother wasn't there. So my nervous system was geared towards a little bit more anxiousness, sympathetic driven. Yeah, I was one of those kids that rocked myself. So I I know now as an adult, that was kind of a, a moment when I realized I used to rock myself to soothe. And that's me trying to nurture myself. So you were rocking and this was at age 10, 11, 12? Earlier than that. Earlier was, than that. Okay. I was rocking as a as a young kid. Okay. And yeah, and that was my way of 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 So then you went from rocking to weed to marijuana. To weed. Yeah. yeah, exactly. You know, trying to fix, trying to regulate, trying to calm the the nerves. And so I You just had all this anxiety. I did. I had all that anxiety, didn't know what to do with it. I got into, I got my first job at 14 in the restaurant business and I excelled very quickly. I took to it. I loved it. I love the food. I love cooking. Doing what? Were you, were you cooking or waiting tables or what? I started off as a dishwasher at 14 years old. And by 16, 17 years old, I had one night a week behind the line as the head cook wow. at, a, at a restaurant. So when they came back there to see the head chef, this it was me standing and uh, I wanted to go to school. I had some What kind of restaurant was it? It was a seafood restaurant. In Situate? In uh, Marshfield, Brent Ross. What, what was the name of it? The Lobster Tail. Wow. Yeah. Good for you. And I wanted to go to Johnson and Wales. And, and my chef at the time brought me there because he went there. He was an alumni and I uh, showed me the building and we went in and did a tour. But life got a little too hectic, as I'll share with you as we go on. I didn't have the opportunity to go to university, but lo and behold, I was and am, I've always been an entrepreneur. So I'll just share. Did you graduate high school? Yes, of course. Yes. And I would actually. You've been an entrepreneur all along? I've been an entrepreneur since I was a little boy. And I'll share with you. When I went to yard sales, my my mother told me I was negotiating for a picture of Jesus at age five. (laughs) (laughs) And and I'll tell you, I I used to skip my my bus stop to go to the next one because the next bus stop had had candy, had, uh, you know, penny candy and all that stuff. So I would buy the candy. I would get on the bus and then I would sell it and make a profit. 
<laughs> so you'd buy the candy at the yard sale, then sell it on the bus and make a profit. <laughs> I, I would. And as I got into other extracurricular activities like smoking grass, I looked at it like, oh, why would you spend money on this when you can buy so much more and make your money back? And so I'm not proud of this, Dr. Hallowell, today, but I'll just share with you as where I was at is as a young age too, my father wasn't I never remember my dad handing me $5 ever. I had to make it on my own once I turned 14 years old. I got my working papers and I had to make it happen. I bought my own school clothes, all that sort of stuff. So you bought your own school clothes? I bought my own school clothes. Your, yes. your father didn't even give you money for that? Once I turned 14, 15 years old, I mean, I was kind of responsible. So you had to beg, borrow or steal or earn the money for everything. I worked. And I made things happen. I'll just share with you once again, it's kind of comical as I look back, because now I support people with trauma and addiction. But of course, you know, I do my work because I've had to heal these wounds within myself. So going back, I, I used to sell marijuana and I'll share a little bit as I got into opiates, right? I got hooked on Oxycontins and, and I sold those and I'm not proud of that today, but it, it happened. And I would save my money and I would actually put a lot of that money in a Roth IRA when I was a young kid. And I bought my first home when I was, was about five years sober with that money that I made from selling substances on the street. So now, how I old were you when you started Oxycontin? I was about 16, 17 years old, 16 years old till about 18. And you, um, you, you, you would sell it and then you, you saved it. You didn't spend it. Yes. I saved a lot of my money. You put it into a retirement plan. I did. My mom's boyfriend at the time. And, and I, I began as, as I got older, 14, 15, 16, mom would come, mom kind of came back into our lives a little bit more. My father couldn't quite keep his, his control. So we wanted to see her and she, you know, we had, she had joint custody at some time, but she had a boyfriend who was very successful and he owned a, a multi-million dollar steel company. And he said, Mike, I want to show you the power of investing. So he brought me at 16, 17 years old to Merrill Lynch. He sat me in this big board table with all these guys in suits. And he was like, I want you to show my steps on the power of investing. So he got me going with thinking the idea to buy real estate, multifamily, which I bought my first multifamily at 24 and to invest my money. So I wound up buying that first house with the money I bought selling substances. Once again, not proud of that. It just was. You don't have to keep saying not proud of it. You, you're, it's a wonderful story and you have nothing to be ashamed of. Okay. We Thank know you. you're not. Uh, you're you're not advising people if you if you want to yes you want to, <laughs> there's other have a great to life this. go ahead and sell oxycontin but it yeah. was very resourceful of you and and uh, you know the entrepreneur and you you know came out yes for sure so that that battle with substance I'll share with you Dr Hellwell is I I met my match with oxycons and we didn't know what they were and and I'll, I'll share with you at the time of me being on oxycons well. Let me share with you. I came to a jumping off point where I couldn't use them anymore because I was so weak and I, I was sick. And I said, I called my mother and I said, mom, I, I can't get off these pills. You know? And she said, all right, let's go to the doctor. So she brought me to the doctor. I was 18 years old. I was sitting on the bench of my pediatrician's office at 18, strung out on Oxycontins, a pediatrician doctor's office. Wow. And he, he did his you know, exam, a great guy, Dr. Moran situated. He said, Michael, you're okay. You're good to go. And I said, good to go where, doc? And he said, uh, you're good to go to detox. And I, I kind of looked around the room and I said, me? 
And he said, yeah, I, I said, I, I'm not going to detox. So I'll share with you at the time, my ego wouldn't let me go to detox. But what I did, as you say, resourceful, I got some. And once again, I never saw methadone to this day. I got these wafers on the street. I knew they could help me come off. I broke them into little pieces. I weaned myself off. What were I, wafers? What was in there? The they were little wafers of methadone. Ah. And once again, I, I don't know about them. I, I just happened to come across them. I knew I needed to come you, off. You created pills. your own methadone clinic. I created my own process and I had some, I, I, and I, once again, I don't recommend this for anyone, but I, I played doctor and I was able to get off of those Oxycontins to this day. I've never touched an opiate since almost 19 years later. Wow. And during that time, I was 30 days sober. I was marking off X's off each day of the calendar. I was suffering from so much anxiety from coming off these pills. I wanted to jump out of my skin. And my father's story came out in the newspaper. Ooh. And I said, wow. I said, and it was, I remember crying with a buddy. I was going through so much pain. And I said to myself, if I can stay sober through this, I can stay sober through anything. The story of his abusing kids as a priest. Yes, it came out in the newspaper. And thank God I graduated high school because I probably would have had to hear that from the right. classmates. And it right. was really embarrassing. Right. So I got off those pills, but I continued to use other substances like alcohol and smoke marijuana. But as an old friend, Peter used to say, I quit drugs in the order they were going to kill me. So that, that's what happened with me. And at the end, two years later, after I got off Oxycontins, I hit a depression. I was terribly depressed. At this point, I had my own uh, apartment in Quincy, Massachusetts with a buddy and I hit a depression and I, I reached out for help to my mother once again. And she said, okay, you know, why don't you tend I, I, at this point, I was just drinking alcohol and it wasn't like an everyday thing, but I it was, as you know, it's a depressant. So she said, let's, let's go to a meeting of AA. And my mother was attending AA and she, she kind of still to this day, she has her moments of drinking, not drinking, but I went to AA and I identified with the people's pain anxiety, depression, all that sort of stuff. And I, I left that meeting with a little bit of hope. And I said, Ma, that meeting was great, but I'm not an alcoholic. And I went out that night and I got trashed and I drove erratically. Trashed meaning what? Trashed, what? trashed off alcohol, off vodka. And uh, I woke up that next morning with the same feelings that they were talking about, impending doom, anxiety, depression. And I said, okay, Ma, I, I think I need to go to another one of those meetings. And I did. And I got I got sober and clean on November 24th, 2004. So I've been sober for a little over 17 years. Now, there's a little, a little caveat to that. I'm also a graduate of the Salt City Psychedelic Therapy Program. I've used psychedelics in healing context. So there's more I can explain about that. But that's a whole other field that I'm in. And when, um, did, you, when did you start that? Over 10 years into my recovery. Okay. And I'll, I'll share with you. So I got off all substances in 2004. I got and involved. You, just did it. you went to that one AA meeting and, and you, you just stopped? I attended more 12-step meetings. Okay. And I got sober in the 12-step program. I don't attend 12-step today. I'll share a little bit more about that later, but that's how I built my foundation. I met a, a wonderful host of friends and, and I was having a great time. And you know I managed to stay that path until about nine or 10 years into my recovery when all that suffering I just shared with you about my parents, about my mother, about the abuse, addiction, that was like a skip in the tulip park compared to what I experienced 
nine or 10 years, nine years sober. And what happened was, as you know, from ACEs, adverse child experiences, that the body holds the trauma and it makes us more susceptible to disease, illness, things of that nature. So I bought my first home, like I said, 25 years old, 26 years old. And uh, I was working on it night and day, night and day. And all of a sudden, boom, I got this stomach situation and I had diarrhea and I had blood and diarrhea. And I was like, oh, this isn't good. And I went to the GI doctor and he said, all right, let's do a colonoscopy. And he did. And I came out of the recovery room and he said, you have universalis ulcerative colitis, meaning my whole colon was ulcerated. Wow. Now, in my work, there's, and I studied, like I said, under a naturopathic doctor in the correlation between mind-body, the biography and biology, what happened to you and how it ends up in your body. And do you think this doctor may have put his hand around me and said, hey, Mike, tell me your story. You know, what, what happened to you? How did your whole colon get ulcerated at 25? And no, he, he didn't. But where I'm going with that is there's a direct correlation between what I was holding from childhood and the correlation to getting diagnosed with IBD, irritable bowel disease. So wait a minute, says, what did he do? He didn't put his arm around you. What did he do? He said, take six of these, take five of these, take some prednisone and see me in six months. And I said, I had no idea what universalis ulcerative colitis was. I know six months. My God. See you in six months. And it's sad, but he actually was retiring during that time and totally, you know, kind of left in the middle of treatment, but that's a different story. But where I'm going with that is there's a reason why ADHD is here. There's a reason why illness is here. There's a reason why anxiety, depression is here. And it's often what we've lived through. So I left that colonoscopy with all this medication and I happened to get myself in remission a year into it. But you're saying this was the old trauma was a skip through the tulips compared to this? I haven't got to the oh, to the okay. to that suffering yet. Okay. So I got into somewhat remission and I had this really urge to travel. At that point I was making six figures in my mid 20s. I had left the Doing what? Left- you weren't you weren't selling candy anymore. What were you doing? <laughs> <laughs> I had left the restaurant world and I got into uh, doing stonework when I was about 15, 17. I loved that. I loved the hands-on. But eventually my my buddy, you know, who who I befriended in AA, he said, you know, you, you want to get into a real job, an office job? And I said, oh, sure. What, what are we doing? He said, we're headhunting for engineers, a lot of aerospace, military defense. So I got into this company with no background, no skills in there. And I started, I was making six figures within my first three or four years as a headhunter for engineers in in a top thousand fortune company out of Jacksonville, Florida, here in Massachusetts. And I excelled once again, bought my first home and was, was really living a good life. And I got this urge to travel. I was dating this girl long distance. It didn't work out. So I told my company, I said, I want to go travel. Can I collect unemployment? And they said, oh yeah, sure. Just come back. Cause I, I was the top performer. And they wanted me back. So they kind of gave me whatever I wanted. So I traveled. I grabbed a backpack, one-way ticket into Mexico. And I started traveling, just backpacking. Went Mexico, Belize, Guatemala to Panama. I sailed the San Blas Islands of the Caribbean to Colombia, Ecuador, Peru, and Chile. Nine countries, five and a half months. But I got a parasite from eating something bad in Guatemala. And it tripped off the IBD again. 
so bad that I had to come home early. I was trying to make it all the way to Brazil for Carnival, but here I am coming back from Santiago, Chile. I got blood in my stool again. I can't digest food. I'm totally in a bad spot. So here we are getting to the, the suffering is, as we know, the gut and the brain are intricately connected. And the inflammation was going from my gut to my brain. And if in the world of functional medicine, there's something that talk about, you know, these different barrier systems, your colon barrier system, your lung barrier system, and your brain barrier, your blood brain barrier. And I had eroded these barrier systems. And once again, the gut and the brain being connected, I eroded that blood brain barrier to the point where I was breathing in, you know, breathing in chemicals or scents, perfumes. I was developing multiple chemical sensitivity. I was reacting towards smells. Now, Dr. Hello, as a young kid, I've always had a sensitive sense of smell. So there was something there to begin with. But when I got older and I got this IBD, something happened where this intensified. And as we know, the only sense that goes directly to the amygdala is the sense of smell through the olfactory. And it was alarming my amygdalas. To the point where, when I share this with you, I was so inflamed with inflammation and so sensitive to chemicals that I couldn't even be in the everyday environment. Because what? You'd feel pain? I would feel immense anxiety, immense. My face would flush because my nervous system was at threshold. So what did you have to do? Just stay inside? Well, what happened is I was seeing, I switched GI doctors and I told the GI doctor at Brigham and Women's Hospital. I said, listen, I can smell like a dog. I don't know what's going on. And he didn't know what to do with me. The drug I was on, which I think exacerbated this, was an immunologic drug. When you say you can smell like a dog, you mean you had as acute a sense of smell as a dog? I would put me up with any canine back in that day. I could smell you downwind 70 feet. Wow. I was that hypersensitive, but I'll share with you what it led to. Part of that, I think, was the drug I was on gave me or I was developing autoimmune hepatitis because my liver couldn't process it. And as we know, liver processes chemicals. So here I am looking at two doctors in the face. One's a GI, one's a hepatologist saying, you might want to remove your colon because my colon, I couldn't digest food. The IBD was in it. And then I had the other hepatologist saying, if you don't take care of this, you're going to need a liver transplant in eight years. And I said, is this all you have for me? And they're like, yeah. And I, I left that day and I never returned to Brigham and Women's Hospital again. That's over almost nine years. I have my colon today. I have my liver today. I'm well, so what did you do? How did yeah. you get treatment? So here I am suffering. I can't even be in this environment. So I started to retreat to the woods. As Dr. Porter talks about the old Japanese tradition, forest bathing, I started to hug the trees and I started to plead with nature. I started to meditate. Now I'm the son of a born again, Christian preacher, priest. That was like forbidden, okay, mm -hmm. was to meditate. I started practicing and listening to the teachings of the Buddha because they talked about liberation of suffering. I started to meditate and meditate. And when I say this, I was suffering so deeply that I thought I was going to die. And I leaned in, I leaned in and I kept on settling my mind. And as in Buddhism, they talk about these jhana states, states of rapture, states of bliss, states of just exuberance. And I had a profound mystical experience as a result of meditation. And by that 
powerful experience, I began to express genes of getting well. My cortisol lowered. My consciousness shifted. I got to see how I got here, what I was holding. I had to feel those emotions that were deep down at the core of my being and release them and forgive my parents and forgive the people who hurt me. And I had to find a functional medicine doctor and I had to change my diet and I had to practice mindfulness. I did a fecal microbial transplant that changed the whole microbiome in my colon, right? I had to do all the detoxification. I had to do all of these holistic approaches so I could get myself back to wellness. And sure enough, little by slow, little by slow, I began to turn the corner. My digestion turned on. My cognitive issues began to get better. And then I knew when I was going through this process that, I, that this was all happening for me in the context of I was shedding that old ego self, that old Mike Gavoni that was riddled with fear and holding all these wounds. And I was feeling this expansiveness and I was getting creative. And I said, I'm here to help people. That, that's why this is happening. I'm here to serve people. So I started studying with a naturopathic doctor. I went back to become a certified holistic health coach. I started other, you know, other certifications and, uh, you know, I'm a somatic experiencing practitioner, work of Dr. Peter Levine. And I said, okay, trauma is at the root of what's going on with addiction as well. And that day that I left AA nine years into my recovery, right? I couldn't go back there because I couldn't stand the cigarette smoke from people and, and that sort of thing. But also when I had that spiritual awakening, now I don't share this from an ego perspective, but I didn't need Alcoholics Anonymous. I wasn't at that level of consciousness and I was following a different path. And here I am today in Sedona, very successful private practice, supporting people to heal. Now your Uh, private practice is as a healer? I don't call myself a healer. I call myself an integrative practitioner. Integrative practice. But you take people who have problems with... What kind of problems? So my practice has grown a little bit here. My ideal clients are people who are in recovery from addiction and who want to experience deeper healing. So maybe they've been in AA 12 steps, don't know still what's wrong. I've had clients that have had suffered from addiction and IBD. I know one of your mottos is healing beyond recovery. So you take them the next the next level. The next level. Okay. The next the next level. Yeah. Yeah. And that. It's a remarkable story, but you're also still an entrepreneur. You're building your business and what else are you investing in? I am an entrepreneur for sure. So that house that I bought with that money, I wound up selling and making over a quarter of a million dollars. I wound up rolling it into another property, which is very successful. We have some Airbnbs. My wife and I, we own property in East Boston and some in Massachusetts and some in Sedona. And so I'm part of Dan Sullivan's work of strategic coach. So I am through and through entrepreneur. And now I, I also, you said you have ADHD. How do you keep track of all those properties with your ADHD? <laughs> well, I found you. I can't remember if I found you through Kyle or Joe Polish first, and then I found Kyle. So anyway, I've worked with someone from your organization, Kyle, executive function coach, which has been very helpful. My daily practice. Those are the things that keep me keep me aligned, keep me on par. You talk about them in your book, daily structure, nutrition, sleep, positivity, accepting the right help. 
I have to get help. I have to sleep. I have to meditate. I have to find my structure. I have my, if you see in front of me, I have about 95 sticky notes. Uh-huh. Um, so it's a process, but, but I, in I, here you are helping others. I mean, so you're a great example of in giving, we receive and, and vice versa. That's a yeah. amazing story, Mike. That, that's, yeah. and, and the night is young. You're only 38. The night is young. Hopefully got many, many more years. And uh, my wife and I are trying to have kids now. And so, yeah, it's, it's you'll just be a great dad. Believe me, you'll be a great dad. You're uh, I can't thank you enough for sharing the story. It's very inspiring because you've, you've overcome all kinds of obstacles from two parents who weren't quite up to it, but yet came through for you in, in the best way they could. And, then your own natural skills as an entrepreneur, as a survivor, as an ingenious tactician, and your own creativity. And um, it's marvelous. It's marvelous to see and that you are so open to all these different approaches. Any last words you want to say to my audience? I'm sure they're all as impressed with you as I am. Yeah, last words I, I would say is, try your best. I know a lot of people with ADHD, addiction, things of that nature can really hold this you know, lower sense of self or feel like something's wrong with them. And to develop empathy and self-compassion for what you're going through as someone with ADHD or addiction or trauma, whatever it may be, is to, if you can begin to just turn to yourself with some compassion and understanding, that's a great, beautiful first step, because then you can open up to other processes and, and open up to that help that you actually deserve. And just like the work that you've done, thank you so much. This book, ADHD 2.0 was a game changer for me. And you say it's a superpower. And I have so many clients today that have ADHD. And I'm like, you got to check out this book. You got to check out Dr. Hello's work. And it's not a liability. It's an asset when you learn how to work with it. So to support my clients to develop their braking system for their Ferraris, is a huge part of my work. And it's by breathing, it's by orienting to the present moment, by slowing down. So find the present moment to your audience, come to yourself with self-compassion and the rest will follow. Mike, that's just so wonderful. Thank you so much. And I'm so glad. Uh, uh, please stay in touch with me and get, who's the coach you see? What's his name again? Kyle, Kyle. Kyle to give you my email. And for any of you listeners, if they wanted to, your website is what your what is your website? My website is my first and last name, Mike Gavoni, M-I-K-E-G-O-V-O-N-I.com. Mike Gavoni.com, Instagram, Mike Gavoni. Wonderful, wonderful. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much. And thank you all for listening. Today's episode was brought to you by Zing Performance. And to learn more, go to hallowell.zingperformance.com. Zing Performance is the leading non-medication way of improving life with ADHD. It relies on balancing exercises, which activates the cerebellum, which is a natural way of helping people with the symptoms of both ADHD as well as dyslexia, as well as emotional control. So check it out, Hallowell. Dot zing z is in zebra zingperformance.com hallowell.zingperformance.com i love love what they do and thank you all for listening i love what my guest mike has done it's just a shining example of how a life uh, that begins in pretty tough waters can emerge triumphant and he's only 38 years old 
Okay, this is Dr. Ned Hallowell wishing you all a wonderful, glorious day and week. And I look forward to seeing you next time. Goodbye. Goodbye.